0: Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Russian Football News Podcast, coming once again every fortnight, although sort of hit and miss every other day or so in between those two weeks. Anyway, joining me as per usual, we have the editor of the website, Toka Thelade. How are you doing?
1: Hey, Samus, how are you?
0: Yeah, good. Have a nice trip in Moscow.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and we'll nice trip home as well.
0: Yeah, we'll talk about that shortly. Um, <laughs> Andrew, I can hear you chuckling away, and you're joining us in TUMN once again.
2: I am, I am. I don't have the same travel problems that Toka had, but uh, I'm doing well. How are you, Thomas? I'm you all right.
0: Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Uh, Toka, t- we've sort of got the trailer underway for the listeners. You you have to now say the whole plot.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, after spending a month in Moscow. i basically just switch around the dates of my departure, so three and a half hours before I was supposed to leave Moscow, I discovered that I, I was leaving Tuesday and not Wednesday, as I thought, so it was, it, was, it was a busy day, and I made it ten minutes before boarding time, but in the end, it all worked out, so I guess that's the most important thing.
0: I was thinking, by the way, were you already packed?
1: No, but, I mean... It goes pretty quickly when you just throw everything <laughs> down in the in the suitcase <laughs> in a <the> random
0: order. <laughs> I hope you didn't forget anything. Um Okay, so we've got some good sort of well connected topics today really. So first of all we're gonna start with the, the state's role in Russian football, which I'm sure is an interest sort of those people outside of Russian football really interested in the, the workings of the background of Russian football. So, we've heard things from Vladimir Putin in recent days, the Russian president, of course, talking about the possibility of cutting uh, funding to sport in general, and we've also had a response from the Russian Football Union head, which is Vitaly Mutko, who's also the sports minister. So, Toka, do you want to just sort of go through the background of this story for the listeners?
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, it's very interesting because one of the things that I believe very few people actually know about Russian football is how big a role the state plays. I'm sure most people, they know about Senate and Gazprom and how Gazprom uh, pumps tons of money into Senate, but the, the role is, is almost even bigger at, uh, at the smaller clubs where most of the clubs are both owned and sponsored by regional governments and who get their funding from the state, of course. So, yeah, I mean, the state plays... Uh, a huge role in Russian sport and in Russian football as as is our to- our topic, um, and it would it could really hurt many of these clubs who are absolutely dependent on getting their funding from the from the states and from the regional governments. So if if they suddenly decide to make some major changes here, that could completely change the landscape of Russian football.
0: But Andrew, would you not say that it's sort of time to move on from this rather draconian system?
1: It does seem that way um,
2: from one point of view. And I personally do believe it, it needs to happen at some point. Um, but, you know, when when there's such reluctance of, you know, well-moneyed owners, uh, private investment to be to be put into football, and if you look at it as a product, it doesn't look particularly attractive to, you know, to businessmen to, to pile millions into at the moment. There aren't huge fan bases, you um, you know, attendances uh, aren't looking great. The performances in Europe are sort of so-so. Some clubs are doing better now, I guess, but um, you know, the, the major players aren't even staying anymore. Um, so why would major businesses invest? But somebody's got to start doing it if it's going to become more privatized as opposed to you know state-funded and state-run. Um, the problem I see is not actually so much about the level of investment that um, that clubs will benefit from from the state or the lack of in my opinion but more the you know the the, the ownership you know on, on the running of the sport that clubs depend on the state and they know that unless they grease the right poles, they're just not going to they're not going to survive when they need help um we saw the presidential election the russian football union um how Mutko's election didn't surprise anybody and most, I say most, a large part of the reason will have been because clubs just wouldn't have dared vote against him knowing that he really does control their futures. Whereas, you know, in more open markets uh, in different countries around around Europe, around the world, uh, clubs don't depend on the state, the, the football association. So... Uh, I think some people might be a bit nervous. They might see it as a bit of a risk to go more private. But in the long term, I don't see how Russian football will move on or at least keep up with the rest of, you know, rest of world football, European football. So long term, I think it has to happen, although it will take a lot of bold first leaps of faith um, of investors and firstly for them to be allowed to do so. Um, and I don't think that will happen anytime soon. So, would
0: you pretty much go along with what Andrew says, or would you think that actually the state—the fact that the state has such a key role—is quite useful? Because, I mean, this I- this is a very sort of naive point of view, I suppose. But there's not so much about the profit in this.
1: Well, you could say that, and you could say that maybe they sponsor these clubs for some very idealistic reasons, and and so on. But the fact remains that it it doesn't really benefit the league. It doesn't really benefit football in the country, I believe. Of course, we have a large amount of of professional clubs, but as we have talked about many, many times before, we probably have too many professional clubs. We have too many clubs who are not financially sustainable. Um, so, I don't see this state involvement as a positive thing. But I have to disagree with Andrew on one thing, because I don't think it, it, it should be the the companies that make the first step, because I understand very well why you won't uh, invest in a Russian club right now. I mean, it's we saw, for example, even Savidis as Rostov, who put in a lot of money, became main sponsor of the club, and he has basically no influence. He's just, hey, we need your money, but that's it. So I understand why you wouldn't throw your money after a Russian club at the moment. I think it should be the state who make the first step, the state who should, who should let these clubs go, let them become... Businesses, as we know, in all other all other countries, and I'm a football romantic, so it's difficult for me to say this, but I just I think it's the only way for, for Russian football to move forward because right now all the clubs are they find themselves in a very comfortable situation. They get the money and they don't really have to to work that hard for it. But but that also that's also holding them back because none of them are, are really forced to develop. They can just keep doing what they've always been doing and then Russian football is just stalling and it keeps being at the same level as it has been for a very long time. And I definitely think it's a shame because there is potential. I mean, that's for sure.
0: The thing is, I would say, though, Toki, you say it's not really up to the companies to take the initiative, but surely in the sort of, well, let's accept it now, Russia is trying to be a capitalist society. It is up to sort of private businesses to do that sort of thing. And also, the example I point out is Gazprom did this at Zenit. Now, I know Gazprom are a large company, but it's not like ga- um, Russia lacks large companies. So there's plen- plenty of companies who have the potential to do this but are just choosing not to.
1: Well, you, Gazprom is, is not really that that private, though. I mean, what 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 I think would be the best if we have guys like Galitsky, for example, people who are uh, who are completely p- private companies or private persons who, who want to go in and invest, or also like Gina or, or Fedona, Spartak, and Cisca. Uh, these are the guys I think the clubs have to attract. But also the, they need to accept that I don't think Spartak and Krasnodar and Siska are very good examples right now because none of them are really long-term sustainable. I mean, they're all very dependent on the having the money of this one guy. And then a summer, like this one we saw with Siska, where the owner doesn't have money to spend, the club will, will not be able to spend any money and it will stall the development. So... I think the best thing would be if many of the clubs would have to cut their budgets to a more realistic level, and then I think it would also be more more interesting and more tempting for outside investors to actually put money into these clubs, because right now they have a lot of expenses and they have very little, uh, a very low income, so it's not really a, a business you want to go into if you want to make money, if you want to somehow get your name out. But if the plus budget was smaller, if they had fewer expenses and were on a more realistic level compared to the income, then I think it would also be much easier to attract investors and, and owners and sponsors because the amount of money needed to actually succeed would be smaller and and easier to, to throw after these clubs.
0: But the thing is, Andrew, I'm gonna come to you now, is that Tuck says that they need to reduce their budgets, but it's these sort of large budgets that have got Russia, let's be fair, catching up with the top five leagues in Europe. They're now less, the less than half a coefficient point per hour in fifth place France at the moment. So, surely, sort of, I'm not saying it's a good idea to increase budgets massively, but I mean, I can see where Toka comes yeah. from with that income argument, but uh, what would your
2: thoughts be on this? Yeah, it's it's actually a very good point you mentioned, because I mean, I've been keeping an eye on, like most of us have at the site, um, how Russia are closing in on the coefficient points. And it could potentially make a huge difference um, to, you know, thinking financially further ahead. If they if Russia do get to is it fourth or fifth place in the coefficient table, they'll get an extra Champions League place. And if that comes along, then, of course, then more money comes in at the top end of the of the of the scale. But. Um, I think token does have a valid point in the long term. If the model of attracting more outside investment, not depending on the state, um, is going to happen, it needs to be made more attractive to investors. I mean, you know, you'd like to think there are enough wealthy individuals who are happy to throw some money towards a, a project that will give them a bit of a profile and you know promote their business or whatever, but. We've got to be. We've got to be realistic. People need more than just an invitation. They need to be. They need it to be made inviting to them. The actual prospect itself. So if budgets were, and I, I think the the financial fair play ethos is something that, that is is good at the heart of it is good. And if that could be brought more specifically into the Russian game, um, it might be the way forward to actually laying the groundwork to get private investors in. Um, now, I mean, how do you strike the balance between, you know, more investment, bringing in bigger players, bigger salaries and therefore success in Europe, like you mentioned, um, and and building for the long term for the, for the good of all clubs? Um, it seems to me that the Russian Football Union over the last five, ten years has had a focus on the top end of the Premier League. I mean, when we saw the whole football calendar shift, from what is a much more sensible spring to autumn winter calendar in line to make it in line with European League. So there's a massive winter break but a very short end of season. Uh, ostensibly so they said to help teams in Europe. And the, the performance over the next three, four years was was abysmal. So um it shows they haven't really thought it through in my mind. Um uh, oh God what is the answer? It's a it's a difficult one. Um personally I think stricter you know i mean i'm talking on a russian level not a, not just a uefa level but stricter financial fair play regulations need to be need to be implemented regardless of what the intentions are because we can't keep seeing clubs go either out of business or relegated willingly or not down to you know second or third tier um, you know we're seeing historic clubs we see uh, torpedo in moscow is an easy example um and now they're struggling in the third tier so just to keep clubs alive, forget how they're owned, but to keep them alive, there needs to be more control. Um, but I think it would, if more controls were put on, put in place, it would bring the investment that we're talking about in. So I think it needs to happen. Um, and in the end, nobody could disagree on any level because it doesn't suit anybody on any level, the government, businessmen, fans, if clubs are going out of business. So I'm going to hold out hope that it will will happen. So this is now a question to both of you. I'm thinking, okay, we're
0: sort of football fans, so we think, oh yeah, it's great that all money should be invested in football. But there's, you know, there's lots of budget cuts in Russia on a sort of uh, on the sort of benefits level. We've seen pensions drop down, and obviously the price of the rubles going down with the the falling oil prices. So, question to both of you is, how do you persuade s- sort of the a man or a woman who's not interested in football in Russia to think that actually perhaps this this move to cut the budget on sports in general I, I, is a bad idea. Toko, you, I'll take you first.
1: I think when, when, when we talk about this, I think this, the government and countries should be involved in sports. I think the money they invest should just be invested in, in, in grassroots and in youth football and in social projects, but they shouldn't have anything to do with the professional game. I don't think that's that's simply not the the, um, the role of the government. I think they should Direct all their spendings into youth development that could also benefit the national team and the clubs in the longer run, but, but not in the in the professional game on the Premier League and the First Division and and these things. Um, and of course, I, th- I mean, as a as a country, I think it makes much more sense to spend the money you have on welfare and all, the, all these other things because football is definitely a a luxury to spend money on, especially in a financial crisis as in Russia. Um, so I would say it would be completely sensible to, to start reconsidering the amount of money being spent and used on foreign football stars and Hulk and Pavlichenko and all these guys.
0: So, Andrew, how would you go about sort of persuading that, that man or woman on the street that this is a bad idea to stop this spending?
2: Well... I, I, to be honest it's it's difficult to completely persuade him it's a bad idea but I agree with what Toka's saying I think that is the line I would take I would say look you know you, you see you see in the public eye the the best played players and they don't always attract the best attention and that's the that's the negative association the you know the person who's not interested in football will will have with football as a whole but what needs to be stressed is the value of sport to society as a whole. You know, getting youngsters fit, getting um, you know, g- communities together, giving them a target, giving them, um, giving youngsters somewhere to you know to, to develop themselves physically, mentally, together. I mean, I I walk through the town where I live, Chumen, and there are the, the best example is through schools. You know, schools here. Uh, I don't know whether this is only on a local government level. I suspect it is, but there is a lot of investment on in um, schools laying down uh, artificial surfaces, which are then rented out in the evenings to members of the public. Um, yeah, I play twice a week, and a school right in the centre of the city, brand new, top of the range um, 3G Ashton Surf pitch, and and it's an excellent resource. That's where that's the sort of level of funding. Um, that's one example of where the level of funding could be persuaded. You know, people could be persuaded to go along with that um, because it really does benefit all levels of society. Now, if you start from that point and you explain, well, look, if you get people started, but they don't have anywhere to go to, there's no uh, there's no structure with you know quality coaching with an actual prospect of developing yourself better. If you have that interest, you know, what's the point in the first place? Almost, you know, you could just work from the ground up start with schools, you know, you say, right, we need to be able to afford and support coaches at a you know at youth level, like Toka says. And it's the 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 problem with the sell is that it's a long term benefit to the professional teams. You know, I'm talking for football fans here now. Um, that you say right we're gonna invest, invest, invest in youth development and sport it's in schools. You'll, you've got to wait 10, 15, 20 years to see the benefits of that um, but that's the only way it will suit everybody and it, that's, that's what needs to happen I think um, so to answer your question I'd say we're not going to throw all the money at the highly paid stars who are way out of line with the average salary we're going to make it benefit everybody from children upwards You know, make it more of a community based investment The
0: line I would go for is that you might find this slightly interesting is that I've actually just finished reading a book called Gangs of Birmingham and it's uh, about gangs in Birmingham sort of the 1860s and 70s and talks about how the the youth used to sort of throw stones essentially at people to pass p- uh, to pass the time and sort of l- lots of stabbings and things like that and actually it says in the conclusion of that book that the outbreak of football uh, particularly in schools and things like that was a big sort of cure for that gang violence if you like now I'm not suggesting that Russia, modern-day Russia, is going to revert to Birmingham in the 1860s and 70s. But that's <laughs> <laughs> that sort of, you know, focus on giving kids an outlet, essentially, is what I would sort of put my argument on. But anyway, I want to move on now to, which is a nicely connected topic, is Dinamo Moscow. So we know that they've got lots of sort of inter-ties with the state here, Andrew. So do you want to just give the the listeners a bit of a background to the situation?
2: Well, yeah, sure. I mean, um, Dino and Moscow one of the most historic clubs in the country um, and were relegated for the first time in their history last uh, in, in the summer, sorry, um, a few months ago because they they broke financial fair play regulations, uh, mostly due to a very dubious sponsorship deal with VTB Bank, um, who I, I believe I'm right in saying they, the sponsorship money they were paying was judged by an independent expert to be 10 times over the actual value of what they were uh, of what they were getting you know their main shirt sponsors um but they didn't have naming rights the stadium or anything like that so um quite rightly i don't think anybody could dispute they were they were um dots uh, their place in europe um and they were forced to sell lots of their major stars um Mattil Um he was just um a magical player, but they had to let him go, they were relegated. Um and actually I believe this is the best example, certainly that I'm aware of in Europe, of financial fair play regulations working. Um because you know it's it was a complete fast the sponsorship deal they had. Um it was a complete front and it's, uh it broke it broke rules and it got hugely paid stars in um, on an unsustainable level you know we even saw that george mendes deal that was rumored to be in place before I th- believe it was just before they were relegated um where the super agent would have you know brought back some players he worked with them 10 years ago I think it was yeah we
0: discussed that on a podcast earlier um, last season
2: we, we did didn't we yeah. yeah I mean I mean that was just a, a crazy story in itself even if they had stayed up. So I think it's a good thing that they did go down, that that deal dissipated into nothing, because they're now bringing through a you know more more of their young players, and they're having a great season in the Fenel. They're I think six seven points clear at the moment. Um, so I believe it's a success story. I mean, Dynamo fans may disagree in the short term, but by the time they get promoted at the end of this season, which they undoubtedly will do. They'll be in a much healthier position, and I think Russian football will be better the better for it. So, toka what would you go
0: with on the Dinamo story? But actually Andrew reminded me there with the Star Players, you wrote a fantastic piece, I think it was yesterday, about Alexander Budner on the website and the sort of dressing room he was surrounded with at the start of last season compared to the one this season. So if you want to just sort of tie in any answer with Dinamo about that piece, that'd be that'd be fantastic.
1: Yeah, it was it was funny because Butner was one of the few players who didn't manage to, to leave the club last season. I remember, I looked the last time he played for Dinamo Dynamo before that game in Wednesday, was in August last season when they played against Lokomotiv, and and he played alongside Valbuena and um, Sheykhov and Kokorin and all these Christopher Samba, all these great players that played for Dynamo back then, and then the whole thing. Yeah, as Andrew said, they were thrown out of Europe and the player started to leave the club. And he spent the next six months on the second team before being sent to Anderlecht on loan in January. And then he just returned this summer and was very openly saying that he wanted to leave Moscow and Dinamo. But nothing happened, and now he just returned to the first team. And apparently his fitness is is seen as good enough to play in the... For the first team again, and I, I, w- I I'll probably see him a couple of more times this season in the starting lineup, and then I assume they'll try to sell him in January uh, to get in a bit a bit of money just six months before his contract expires. So, but but it's definitely interesting. I mean, he's one of the most expensive guys in the squad, and with V2B Bank sponsorship deal ending in in December, it's it's difficult to see him staying at the club and extending his contract, because he's a very expensive guy, and Dinamo's future is a bit uncertain at the moment, we don't really know what will happen um, with the club, they don't have many sponsors lined up for for next year, so it's, it's, it's an interesting time for, for the club, at least they're doing well on the pitch, so that makes it easier for them to find new sponsors and, and all that of course, but yeah, it should be good to follow.
0: What I was going to say is, you mentioned VTB Bank there, of course, partly state-owned, which goes back to our previous discussion on the state's role. What would you think about Dynamo as an example of having that state involvement to a degree?
1: Well, I think Dynamo is a very clear example of what happens when you become too dependent on getting your mo- money from your owner, because it's important to remember that VTB VTB Bank had this strange double role, both as an owner, but also as main sponsor, kind of like uh, Russian Railways at Lokomotiv, which is al- was also one of the problems, because obviously UEFA doesn't allow that, and I'm not very happy about this, these double roles. Um, and as you could see, the NEMO were completely dependent on VTB 2 b Bank, and as soon as they s- found out that, okay, we can't receive this ridiculous amount of money from, from our owner, then the whole financial budget and and the whole structure of the club just fell through because they had no backup plans they had no other I mean it, it was so unsustainable and so short-sighted that it was almost bound to go go wrong at some point for someone and I wouldn't be surprised to see that happen elsewhere because right now these clubs they just depend so much on these on these owners and it's really not it's it, it's not safe for, for the clubs and the players and whoever's involved
0: yeah, Andrew, as our sort of resident Fenel expert, if you like, um, you keep an eye on Dynamo, I assume, being top of the league, like you said. I mean, what is their – let's go back to on the pitch now rather than off the pitch with them. What is their success this season down to primarily,
2: would you say? Well, it was it was like I, I predicted it would be, and like many people probably did the same, that they – they have a more settled squad and um, they, they've got some, they've got a, a brilliant youth, a youth team that won, I believe won the youth championship two years in a row, or Russian youth cup or something. Um, so they've got a good youth setup anyway. And um, I personally, I was amazed that Kirill Panchenko was allowed to leave CSKA Moscow on loan to join them. Um, and he's just absolutely tearing it up at the moment. He's, he's on 11 goals already this season uh, and bear in mind last season's top scorer Hassan mamtov um got 16 all season uh season before that i think it was Yannick boli got about 15 panchenko's on 11 and we're not even in november um so you know having a quality player like that having a name that it attracts players like that um is is also pretty helpful um and the the fact the truth is that even with i mean unless something truly horrific happens in december when the uh, vtb bank sponsorship ends and they if they fail to find any sponsorship and can't pay wages unless that happens the the players would know that they're joining obviously the biggest club in the division and therefore virtually certain to go up if not at the end of this season then the next and we now can see they will go up this season so you know they've got a they've got positivity about them um they uh, they're not you know it's not like getting relegated from the Premier League to the championship in England where the gap in finances is so enormous from the prize money from you know finishing finishing bottom of the Premier League getting I don't know how much it is is it what, 40, 50 million just for finishing bottom um whereas the prize money from the RFU to clubs is I, I don't know the exact numbers but it's certainly nowhere near that. So they're able to cope with that. Um, and the uh, I hate to say this about my the division, which I watch the most, but the quality in the middle and bottom end of the Fenale is, is is really not very good. So it, it wasn't that it's not been that difficult for them to um, to keep their head above the water. Uh, so I um, I'm just I am really happy for them as a relative neutral. I I want to see I want to see them do well because I think it proves the point. Like I said that. Um, sustain, sustainability is the only way forward um, and you know a lot of clubs in the Fennell at the moment have had their their funding cut because virtually all of them are funded by the local uh, well, regional government um, you know my club uh, I know that much and their budget was cut in half um, two years ago uh, so a lot of clubs just cannot afford to pay a single ruble of transfer fees so it's all about you know free transfer dealings, wheeling and dealing between the clubs, um, and you know the winter the winter break is where most of this happens because they have the the Fennell Cup. It's, it usually takes place in Turkey or, or or Sochi or Cyprus, and the, all the clubs get together there, and you know tr- players go on trial and they swap around. Dinamo won't have to do that, you know they they don't really need to make any more, as far as I can tell from their squad, any more deals. So they're Pretty s- they're pretty set up, um, and uh, whoever joins them will have to be you know, equally well run. it uh, be interesting to see. looks like Tottenham at the moment, but I'm hoping for a late surge from two men. But, uh, I'm not holding my breath. Oh,
0: yeah, I can see them pipping Dynamo to the title. But the thing is, actually, <laughs> you mentioned that the gap between the Premier League and the Championship is huge in the money. But actually, I was going to say, I think that gap is getting quite a bit smaller with parachute payments. We see so many ex-Premier League clubs in the Championship now. And this is back to the off the field thing. The setup that a lot of these championship clubs have off the pitch is Premier League standard. And the f- reason I'm thinking here is although they're not doing so well on the pitch, is Aston Villa been in the Premier League for ever since its inception till this season. Dinamo Moscow the same. I mean, the gap but the but in terms of the championship, the gap between Villa and other championship clubs is not as big as it is between Dinamo and other Fenner L clubs. Do you mm. see what I'm
2: saying? Yeah, no, absolutely, a- absolutely, and that's kind of why um, I I didn't have the slightest worry that Dino would go straight back up because you know the, the there isn't that that concern of what we're really going to have to fight for mm. our survival unless, like I say, of course, major off the field problems come along, like finances on a on a serious scale. On the pitch itself, um, there's a there's a huge difference, and and that's saying something given that the lower end of the even the Premier League is. Is, is not fantastic, shall we say. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think basically the problem we've got is that the health of the middle to lower end of the whole Russian pyramid is just so weak in terms of standards on the pitch, and it tends to get overlooked. And, and I think a story like Dinamo's helps to highlight this issue, and I'm hoping it will bring more attention and in due course more, more funding and structure to the Fennell and Second Division. Um, but I, like I said, I can't see it happening. I'm being pessimistic, as I always am, but um, don't see it happening.
0: We, we don't blame you, but Toka, I mean, going beyond this season for Dinamo, if they, well, I'll say when they get promoted this season, going back into the Premier League next year, do you think that because of the lessons they've, they'll have learned, they'll actually do quite well?
1: I wouldn't be surprised if they did. I mean, as we have seen many times before, and as Andrew just said, the difference between the FNL and the Premier League bottom is, is really not that big. And Dinamo is a big club. They have a, a good setup with a good youth team and everything. So if, if they have their financial situation in order and can pay their players on time and maybe even strengthen the squad a bit, and then, then I wouldn't be surprised to see them end in the, in the better half of the league. and they're, they're, they're not very far from being a very good Premier League side again of course it will take some time to get to the top 3 and top 4 if unless they invest massively like they did before but they are a big club and they have all the right all the right things to actually succeed at the top level also as a as a smaller mid-table club because they have so good youth development which we have seen and um coaching base and uh, training facilities and all these things so yeah definitely I'm quite optimistic if if they just keep the focus and and don't become uh, greedy again and start 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 trying to, to speed up the process to an unrealistic level. Uh, I, I think we might see that happen. But um,
0: we you mentioned it there, talk with the youth development. We get quite a lot of questions about youth development uh, for the Russian football news in general. And we've mentioned how Dinamo have that young team. Is there a general problem with youth development in Russia? Because I'm thinking more at the big teams. We look at teams like Zenit. I mean, they have this fantastic training facility and stuff, all paid for by whoever. But we haven't really seen any big youth prospects come out of the big clubs. I mean, Galavin at CSKA is probably the main exception. But other than that, there's not really much going on. And it's up to clubs like Dinamo, who obviously were a big club, but now in the lower reaches, to develop those players.
2: I think. Um, I think there are some... In the next couple of years, I do think we will start seeing um, more of this happen. And I don't really want to admit this, but I, I have—I think one side product of this, you know, the limiting the the foreigners, uh, the foreigners restriction rule. Um, on the whole, I think it's a, a, a disastrous move simply because of, you know, we've talked discussed it before—the lack of motivation of the top end of the young Russian players, but the ones who are breaking through, who need that bit of. Faith in in their ability to play in a, a pretty aggressive league. Um, you know, play uh, clubs like Ufa. Um, are starting to, to field a lot of young players. You now, Viktor Goncharenko is a uh, is a is a mastermind at, at working with minimal resources. We've seen that in um, in his homeland with Bate Borisov. Um, but you know, he's playing. Uh, Dmitry Christ, sorry about my pronunciation. Um. Uh. I, I'm not even going to try and Igor Bezdenov. Thomas, you're, you speak. I don't. I don't you know me. who you're talking about. Igor God, I, why do they? Why do all have, no. is that There you go. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. 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 <laughs> Apologies, listeners. Um, Oblyakov is only 18 years old. You know, all these guys are playing. You know, pretty much every game, at least, at least part of the game. Um, And at Ural, I'm seeing, I know, not Russian, but uh, Dominic Dinger, uh, 18-year-old Serbian centre-back, he's played almost every game. Um, Radovan Pankov, also Serbian, is only 20. He's playing um, not as much as Dinger, but, you know, they're both playing key roles in the squad, not just filling in for, you know, a a wasted cup game or something like that. So I think we'll start to see more of these sort of players, you know, push on. whether they'll be good enough to make a difference to the senior side, uh, you know, competition level, qualification level, I don't know. But at least Sorry, you're talking
0: about the national team senior side there.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I'm saying, you know, way ahead. Would would the likes of and, um and the others, would they be good enough? Will they develop quick enough to make a difference to the senior national team? I don't know, but they're at least getting senior experience, which is more than could be said a few years ago. So I think there's hope. I do think there's hope. Toku, would
0: you go with Andrew? That there's hope, or is it looking pretty pessimistic from your point of view?
1: Well, I have to say I'm not very optimistic about the quality of, of many of these young players. And of course, one thing is to to get through to the to the um, first team and get these couple of games. But the seem the big p- biggest problem seems to be when they have to take the step from being a young guy, where well you can accept that you can make mistakes to actually become a regular and become a key player on the team. That that seems to be very difficult for many of these players. But of, of course, it's very positive, as Andrew said at UFA and Ural, that we see many of these young guys come through and get playing time. But we still don't really have any young Russians at the big clubs, with Golovin being the, and then with Midentuk and Lokomotiv being the few exceptions. But other than that, it's, it's very difficult to see any future national team players at Senator or Siske right now and that's that's still very worrying because there's there's such a gap between playing both for Ural or UFA or one of these other clubs at the bottom and then actually taking the step to a Europa League club, a Champions League mm. club in the, in the top of the league. It's such a difficult step and it's a, it's a step we haven't seen anyone take in, in, in quite a while, so that, that's still a long way to go, but of course, we have to be optimistic, but yeah, it's it's difficult, especially now when we see the national team, I think next week when FIFA have the new ranking, they will be in the, they'll be outside the top 50, which will have a, and well, have a the, the only thing with that,
0: that is they're not playing FIFA competitive games, are they? So it's a bit no, of,
1: of course, yeah, but, but it's still ranked on the on last couple of years and the Euro and stuff like that, and No matter what, I still think it's worrying to see Albania or Russia. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. (laughs) That's that's never a good sign.
0: (laughs) But, um, Andrew, I mean, we've we've seen it in England. We see a lot of smaller clubs tend to splash the cash rather than going with their own youth team just because of the pressure of staying in the division. So, really, we should give a lot of credit to these smaller clubs in Russia for going that risk. I I know the risk isn't as great when you go down from the Russian Premier League as it is the English Premier League, but it's still a big risk to take to put these young players in, like you said.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's I, I'm try, I'm trying to be as positive as I can, and I do think they. Uh, I think honestly, the the truth is, everybody tries to look for a quick fix. You know, we're 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 bad now. We need to be we need to be good now. We need to have a a, a path straight to the first team now. And um, if we're going to improve the national team, it's going to take. If we're going to do it properly and sustainably, it's going to it's going to take ten fifteen years. You know, we've seen how we've seen how. Germany at the end of the end of the 90s. They, their generation was starting to come to an end and and the next generation coming through wasn't as positive and then they took a complete overhaul of the entire country's coaching philosophy and and now they're if not the best, one of the best national teams in the world. So it takes time. It took 10 years for them to get to that stage.
0: The only thing um, I would say very quickly Andrew is that the DFB, the German Football Association, have a lot more money the Russian, than the Russian Football Union. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, they're, 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 there is that, that's true. Um, but, you know, that actually, if anything, um, strengthens my point. The fact they had lots of money and they didn't just simply throw it at the bigger clubs, but they w- threw it at a sustainable programme means that they thought it through. They realised it was going to take, you know, a good 10, 15 years. So, you know, it's at least, they've, at least it's an example of doing it the right way. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, like Toka said, there's a difference between the Ufras and Udals bringing through you know, young 19, 20, 21-year-olds and, and uh, Zanit, Spartak, Tisqa bringing through more than just the odd player or two, there's a big difference. Um, I mean, one example that sticks out in my mind is um, uh, that Ramil Shredaev at Zanit. Um, and he was yeah, he was a star player in the youth team for a couple of years and just wasn't getting a look in. And now he's gone, I don't know, where, where has he gone to, Thomas?
0: You're, you're the neat man. <laughs> I can't remember off the top of my head, to be honest.
2: Well, I mean, you know, he hes, um, he's I saw he's playing for, you know, he, he changed his allegiance to Azerbaijan. Um, as was his um, legitimate right. Um, he's left Russia and Russian football. And, you know, in fact, was a star player at the wealthiest club in the country. And and he just wasn't getting a look in, in the first team. It does tell you a story. So... Um, I just, hope it, I, I just hope the long-term view will be taken. I hope people have to be patient as long as the right methods have been put in place. Um, it's the only way it will happen. There is no quick fix.
0: It's uh, Trabzonspor in Turkey, by the way. I've just looked it up for Shadayev.
2: That's the one. But um,
0: the thing I'd go with the big clubs, Toker, is that, I mean, I know he's not Russian, but you look at someone like Luka Djordjevic at Zenit. I know, like I said, he's Montenegrin, so it's slightly different, but... He's been given quite a big chance in this season under Luchescu. so surely there's signs there that if you're good enough, you. Wou- I mean, he's not starting for Zenit, admittedly, but he's he'd had good impacts off the bench, scored the winner against uh, Tel Aviv. Um, I mean, unfortunately, he's injured at the moment, picked up an injury against AZ, but Zenit are at least slightly, perhaps, taking that pathway, and we've seen that at CSKA with Golovin. So perhaps there is a change in attitude.
1: Yeah, I don't think the clubs have ever been anti-young players. I mean. Of course, if you're good enough, then the, the, the player will play. I mean, we have also seen that with Kokorin at Dynamo. But I think the problem is that, first of all, we, many of the young players are not good enough to break into these big teams. And then we also have to remember that Georgievich spent many years out on loan and playing a lot of other places than Senna's first team. And but, but we have to give uh, credit to, to Luchesko for actually implementing him into the team and, and Luchescu has a nice record of also giving a lot of young players a chance at Shakhtar I believe so of course it also has something to do with the mentality of the coaches and and how much they're willing to, to risk with these players um, and then of course it also helps that neither Senate nor, nor Sisko really went out and went crazy on the transfer market this season so of course that makes the road to the first team a bit shorter for for the young players which is of course, also a positive thing, and it's positive when they see that. Okay, instead of going out and buying new players, we also have to look to look on our second teams and our youth teams and see what options we have there.
0: I mean, Andrew, this uh, th- I've only just come up with this actually, but it's it's sort of discussion that we could carry on for longer. But I'm going to ask you to keep an answer short. We've seen these B teams from the big clubs. Uh, look at Zenit, mm. Vare and Spartak. Dvar. Does that system work?
2: at the moment I would say it is working because I mean uh, Zenit and Spartak um Devar team that both of them are doing pretty well in the funnel but the only thing I would say f-
0: Andrew just very quickly sorry is that you say they're working well in that division but they're not doing their prime job
2: which is to get the players into the first team at big clubs well I mean they've only had um, they've only had a couple of seasons in the funnels so I think it's um you know they they they've got to have they've got to get used to to competitive experience which is what they're getting now um you know, the gap between youth team football without the b team system at all is um it's just far too big and that's probably the main reason why the players don't make a step up you know they, they they don't realize the commitments they have to make and at the moment i would say they well i mean they're the two of the strongest sides in the FNL. I mean, I remember, what, five years ago, six years ago, when I first started watching men in the third tier, in the second division, and uh, Ruben Kazan Dubal came to play, they were in in our um, our division of the second tier, third tier, sorry, and they were absolutely appalling. I'd kn- I mean, I know that they were only in 1920, know, and yeah, perhaps the physicality of it was came into it, but... They were just terrible in all aspects of the game. And I thought, if that is the level below the senior team, then they're they're, they're never going to have a look at them. I mean, even at Tumen's level, when Tumen were in the third tier, Tumen's second team, um, the manager at the time, uh, Konstantin Galkin, I, I spoke to him and he said, I wouldn't even pick the second team players, the youth team players, for the fourth tier. I don't even think they're good enough for that um so you know it's it's good to see that now the second teams are uh well at least they and Spartak. i'm hoping more second teams will get promoted to the fenel because i think in the long term it is a good thing competitive football at a slightly higher level closer to the first team standard um is can only be a good thing so i mean i i'm, I'm pleased to see how they're doing i think it's a good system as it stands
0: Toka, is the winter a problem, the cold weather? I mean, the things we saw Iceland in the Euros have come off the back uh, of really good sort of indoor football systems and like things like that. Are we not seeing enough of that in Russia?
1: I went to Lokomotiv Academy the other day, actually, um, just before I left Moscow, where I got a, t- I got a tour around the, the place, and they had this absolutely amazing indoor artificial um, grass pitch where they could they could basically train all winter. though Indo- it was heated. There were seats around for the coaches and for even for some fans. I think it was big enough for yeah many many players and it was like a full size pitch inside. So it was absolutely perfect. But of course, it, it makes some limits on um, what to do in the winter because you need to have kind of a big budget to to build something like that inside all you and or you can travel away, but you need an even bigger budget for that. So definitely it's, it, it puts some limits on, especially the smaller clubs, and that's that will come back to the whole state funding, because I think these are the kind of things that the state could be funding, not not for a club like lo- locomotive of course, but um, for communities and cities and, and yeah, social mm. projects, basically. Um, so definitely, I mean, it is a couple of months where... That training is difficult, but that has not been a problem in the in the past. And Russia is not the only country where you have a cold winter. And they, I mean, look at Sweden for example. It's it's also difficult in Sweden, but they still manage to to make slattern. So surely Russia could also succeed despite the despite the winter. You just have to find some some solutions and and some way to to keep the players active and so they don't forget how to play football during those three or four
0: month weather on break. I mean, Andrew, I was gonna sort of Toka beat me to the point really. It really goes to the back to that first discussion. I would say that actually with the cut in funding for sports in general, this is really not gonna happen. And the other thing I'd say is that Z- Toka mentions Latan there. Zlatan grew up a lot on street football. And, I mean, it goes back to another podcast discussion of whether Russia's a footballing country. Everything just connects beautifully. But um, <laughs> but the fact that Russian kids don't go out and play street football <laughs> and things like that, and this cut-in-state funding for indoor venues, it, I really yeah. can't see anything happening, to be
2: honest. Well, it, it is a very good point. I mean, I, I've always been struck by my time here about... I mean, I'm talking about the summer months here. The winter months, it, well, fairly obviously, it's not going to happen outside. But even in the summer months, you don't see those sort of casual games of football or kids kicking a ball around you you know plenty of adults will rent like i say will rent these outdoor pitches that the schools have and they're good quality at school but you won't see the kids off their own back going and playing um i actually think as a solution for the winter and again i'm sure we've had a discussion either on a podcast or or on a round table before um that the during the winter months I mean, you mentioned the funding to, to have these sort of centres, these indoor all weather centres where, you know, winter training or even winter leagues could perhaps be staged. It, the, the funding for those would be infinitely more sustainable than what most Premier League clubs do now, where they go for a, you know, warm weather training session abroad, um, or at least in Sochi. But it, I mean, y- you say it sounds it's in the same country. It's just as expensive. Sochi is an expensive place. You've got to think of all the flights for all of the squad, the the managers, the masseurs, um, the hotels, the food. I mean, that's it's a huge amount, a huge expense. Um, whereas if the uh, government at least put some funding towards a centre that could be used all year round by not just the club but the public and keep it well maintained, um, I honestly think in the long term it would be a sustainable thing. Although I, I know, I know what you. The point you made was a, was a good one, and that just very simply, if, the, if they're going to cut funding on sport, they're hardly going to suddenly jump in and say, Well, now we're going to build a few more indoor centres. Um, although, what I would say is, I'd say two things about it one, that it doesn't have to be seen as funding sport, but simply funding social projects, like we've mentioned, because it really genuinely would be used by you know, by the public, by children playing sport and it could be used all year round quite quite easily. But also I'd say that, you know, most people assume that it's only in Moscow or possibly St. Petersburg that there are these facilities, but there really are in other cities. Um certainly facilities that could be upgraded to to the standard necessary for a winter league. Or or are already at that stage now. Um I know in Novosibirsk they have a facility, the the university there, um a few of my friends here used to study there, um, and they tell me they have an awesome indoor facility. In Yekaterinburg, there's a top-of-the-range one that even hosted Premier League football whilst the SKB Bank Arena was being developed. So, you know, there's there's half a network there. It could be, um, and it doesn't even have to be state-funded. You could simply encourage private investment, get sponsorship, um, you know, put a bit of money and build a few of these facilities, and before you know it, you've got uh, options for a winter period there. So, I think it could be done.
0: I think all FAs of struggling countries like England should just listen to this podcast because we, we've just got the answers. That's the thing; it's fantastic. We do. We do. <laughs> but just before we move on to sort of questions and things, the things I will say about you uh, mentioned with the sort of kids not going on their own back, going around St. Petersburg as I tend to do when I'm there. In sort of every suburban park outside of the city centre, there tends to be a a five-a-side pitch, which is pretty much in use all the time, which is just fantastic to see. But anyway, going to move on to listeners' questions now. We've We've got a few that we've liked the look of. As always, listeners, do send your questions in. We will try our best to answer them. Now, Toka, coming back from your trip in Moscow, we've seen pieces on the website, and it's been a big sort of topic on Russian football news recently about the attendances in Moscow. And somebody's asked us to go into more detail about that. So this is your bag, so you can sort of take the cat and run.
1: Well, it's it's a very big issue, and it, there are probably a lot more. There's there's so many many reasons for these issues, but basically, what we see is we have a lot of beautiful stadiums in Moscow, but we have very few people to fill them. Uh, CSKA Spartak locomotive and actually Dynamo as well. And soon they play an even better stadium. They all play at modern new stadiums. But people simply stay away and one of the main issues behind this is that the clubs make it so difficult for make so little attempt to get people to stadium. And one of the best examples of this is, I think it was yesterday or two days ago, Cisco proudly announced on the website, on the Facebook, on the Twitter that on VK as well that now the fans could finally pay with bank cards when they want to buy tickets. And then yesterday, they said now they could even buy tickets online. And it's 2016, and the club just got online ticket system. I mean, if that oh. when that's the case, I think that's the perfect situation of the clubs, not even trying to get people to the stadium. I spoke with many guys um, when I was in Moscow who said it was so difficult to get there to get their season tickets for Cisco's games. They had to show up in working hours in the middle of the week to pick it up. One guy told me that he went there with his, his kid who was a couple of years old, and he filled out this form to get his season ticket with email and name and phone number and all these things. And then they suddenly asked about the same thing for his son. And, and, and as he said, well, he's only three years old. Of course, he doesn't have an email address. And then they started saying, <laughs> well... He needs an email address before he can get, uh, get, uh, get a season ticket. He, want, he wants
0: s- all the CSKA spam, this toddler. Just give it to him.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so after finally oh talking a bit back and forward about that, he, he wrote his wife's email address down. And then, believe it or not, they did exactly the same thing with the phone number. Uh, <laughs> trying to guy but he must have a cell phone i mean otherwise you can't <laughs> give him a season ticket and it's yeah, just exa- examples like that it's just that's that's why the, the stadiums are too when you actually try, to, it, it's like they actually try to get people to stay away and that's such a shame i think another example that's very good is after cisco again i I go back to them because they have some very extreme cases. To be fair, they
0: the are a huge club, and they should be better than this. E-
1: exactly. And, and after they built this brand-new stadium, and it was full for the, for the opening game against Terek, and then it was half-full for the second game against Krasnodar, and club owner, uh, Evgeny Ginner, said, well, uh, addressed to the fans, of course, well, I gave you the stadium, now it's your job to, to fill it up. And I thought, well, that's oh certainly a lazy attitude, especially because he's a private owner, he should have this business sense to get the stadium filled. But but how can you just give the responsibility away like that? That's that was a disaster because as I've said before, building the stadium is, is definitely the easiest path. The the difficult task is to get people to the stadium afterwards because that's that's what require a lot of discussions and, and thinking outside the box. Everybody can build the stadium if they have enough money. That's that's certainly not an issue. Maybe in Russia, <laughs> but 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 in general, it's
0: it's the easiest part. Just as in St. Petersburg, if it's easy to build a stadium. <laughs> 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 okay, so again, uh, nice quick fire questions. That was great, Toka. I love those examples about CSK. We're going to come on to the only in Russian football later, so that's like a bonus. I hope I haven't hope Toka hasn't taken that away from anybody. But anyway, interesting uh, question that came in as well. So quite an interesting one is that. How did interest
2: for Russian football stem for you as an individual? So, Andrew. Well, I mean, for me, it was it was quite quite simple. I moved out here, um, but the truth was, before I came out here, I knew absolutely nothing about Russian football other than the, the UEFA Cup winning sides uh, in the mid-noughties, and. Um, it was actually, it, well, it ties into what Toby just said. It was very difficult for me to get attached to football. I mean, I, I will watch any level of football. I don't need encouragement. I actively tried to seek out the stadium. And it took me, um, I mean, it's not just because of my lack of Russian or directions. It took me about six months to find the stadium. I couldn't find anybody who went to the ground. Did you find sleep directions. in that time, or were you just wandering the streets of men? <laughs> <laughs> I could have been walking six months solid without sleep and still not found it. But. Uh, <laughs> I mean, in the end, I did go, and it was a brand brand new stadium in the city. It's built to Premier League standards, and I thought, well, this is a club going places. Um, and you know, it was it was a very accessible club, and it's yeah, you know, it's not something that could be said for every Russian club. Um, the marketing manager, as soon as he heard I was English, rushed down to speak to me, and I was treated like royalty pretty much. And um, and I thought, well, yeah, this is all right, this. Um, and actually, I got into the lower league football first f- because men at the time were in the third tier. So I was interested in following the underdog story and thoroughly enjoyed them beating Zanit St. Petersburg in the Russian Cup three years ago. Um, and Thanks for that. And then, yeah, I, just, I was waiting for the response. <laughs> there, <yeah. laughs> but, you know, the for me, the appeal of Russian football has been the, the unknown quantity about it. I mean, you do get some absolute gems of players. And I'm sure on another podcast, perhaps in the winter break, we'll we'll run the rule over the best emerging players. Um, But, you know, I mean, Giuliano, I'll just pick him out. I'll pick on him for a while. He's just absolutely just blitzing it at the moment. And yet, had I not followed Russian football, I wouldn't have known him. And I bet most people in England still don't know about him. Um, So the appeal of Russian football for me is, you know, learning something new about football every day and not knowing quite what direction it's going to go in. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm proud to be a Russian football fan.
0: Perfect. And Toka, how, how, did, how would you describe your experiences?
1: Oh, it's it's a mix between many things. I mean, I've always been very interested in Russia history, culture, all these things. And then co- combined with these great UEFA Cup winning sides and Mikhail loutrop going to to coach Spartak in 2008, and that's well, I guess that's that's where it all started. It I- and then it ended in a a massive failure for s- for Laudrup. <laughs> but well, that's that's a, that's a history for another time, I guess. Yeah, it's not it's not
0: the first time a coach has failed at Spartak, to be yeah. fair.
1: And not the first time Laudrup has failed as well. So yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> is he is he still in the Middle East? Yeah, he just signed a two-year contract with a club in Qatar. Yeah. So he's I don't know. I guess he's earning a lot of money at least. Well, that's
0: fair enough, I suppose. Um, Another question we had, very quickly, answer from both of you. The overachievers and the underachievers of the Russian Premier League this season. Andrew?
2: Uh, Well, for me, the overachievers so far, I'd I'd probably have to say Ufa, because I I didn't see how they were going to recover from losing Zinchenko in the summer to Man City. uh, But... Goncherenko is a is a coach I've always wanted to see do well, and um, because he's been messed around, I think, by various owners and rumours of corruption at Ural um, last season. Um, you know they what well, they're mid table at the moment. They've got like we said earlier, you know, some a good young side. Um, Kehinde Fatay up front, the Nigerian striker, I think, looks a magnificent signing. Um, uh, so I mean, they would be my my overachievers. Um, underachievers that has to be Locomotive I think um, I <laughs> depends how you define over and underachieve I, I didn't expect Locomotive to do much more than mid-table but to be one winner after nine games and, and in the relegation playoff places is is, is just humiliating if, if I'm being honest um, so that's what I would say for over and underachievers
0: and Toko what would your take be on that?
1: Well, my my overachiever will be Spartak. I mean that the fact that they are at number one after nine games that's a small sensation because I really, I really don't think they have that strong a team. And we have seen in the last couple of games, I believe maybe not to the real level, but at least a more realistic level from them. And I certainly don't expect them to be on top of the league when when we are have played all 30 games. I I think they'll be around at 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 best they'll be third. So. They are a massive achievers for, from me at least. And then underachievers, it's very difficult to get around. <laughs> look at most of it. I, I've watched two of the last games, and it was some of the worst football I've seen my entire life.
0: <laughs> it was,
1: it was, it was so bad. And then I don't know if you saw the last game they played against Tula at home. They, they got this incredibly lucky penalty equalizer in the overtime. And Simon changed the entire team, and he looked like a guy without, without any idea of what to do. He just changed eight guys, hoping for, for some sort of reaction from the side. And I mean, he got one point, and that was probably one more than they deserved. But yeah, it, it's I can't mention anyone else but, but Lokomotiv because they're so horrible at the moment.
0: But the Pidashki in the press area are amazing, apparently. If you read the latest <laughs> piece on the Russian football news website,
1: they're meant to be fantastic. Well, at least they're free. <laughs> yeah. Uh, That goes for a long way.
0: Yeah, I'm going to go with underachievers, locomotive, you just can't go beyond that. Overachievers, I'm going to go Amkar. Top five, you know, with a a squad that's quite modest, challenging up there with the big boys ahead of Krasnodar. You know, I think they've done quite well for themselves. And now, it's fast becoming my favourite bit of the podcast, even though we've only done it once, (laughs) is the only in Russian football segment. So, Andrew, what is your only in Russian football section for this podcast?
2: Well... I mean, we, we, we could be here all day going through these, but I'll, I'll say for this week, um, o- only in Russian football could you get uh, literally one away fan in the stadium. Uh, I, w- I went <laughs> to... Uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not exactly one single fan. Um, I, w- I went to the game against uh, Sokol Sadatov, about as nondescript a game as you will ever see in your life. Um, fairly poor match. But no, Sorry, terrible match. Um, and one one chap had turned up, and you just had the the bizarre sight of the entire Sokol team and the subs bench and the managers. So we're talking good, you know, 17, 18 people going over to the stand, all applauding one guy, and, and then the poor chap, you know, walked off out of the stadium all the way to the airport to go home. Why on earth he made the trip to Tumaini, I will never know in my life. Well, it's um, obvious though, Andrew. Really? Well, of course he wanted to see Hassan Mantoff live in person. Um, and that was certainly worth his while. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> him, my, um, my colleague who I was sitting next to, Johnny, he made the comment there was a banner. He brought a banner with him. Um, and it, he said, that banner isn't grammatically correct. It said, Sokol Saratov, away fans. <laughs> I was like, you've, you've actually bought a grammatically incorrect banner. Maybe, there, he, right? maybe
0: he counted the banner as a fan.
2: <laughs> he probably did in some sort of Wilson Beach ball um tom hanks on the
0: desert island sort <laughs> of way <laughs> and toka what would yours be
1: i'm taking some low having hanging fruit for this one i mean i have to go with roman eromenko being taken for 30 days for doping and that's that's such a crazy story we don't even know what what exactly is up and down yet we don't know exactly which rocky apparently apparently got got uh, Caught taking, but it
0: was like a tobacco leaf or something, wasn't it? Chewing
1: that—that—that's that, the rumor, at least. But uh, it seems that nothing is known for sure. But the fact that one of the best league uh, players in the league and the absolute key player for one of the biggest teams and the champions is being taken for doping—that's—that's that's quite unique. I think that's definitely this <laughs> the my only in Russian moment for this podcast.
0: Perfect. Uh, it actually reminds me a bit of the Sacco case at Liverpool a couple of months ago. It wouldn't surprise me if it something to do with fat burners like that. Anyway, my one is, uh, it's a bit of a rant, it's, so we had Zenit versus Spartak a couple of weeks ago and the referee was absolutely sort of attacked on social media essentially by all Spartak fans, even though the game, his game wasn't that bad, he actually only made a couple of bad calls, but generally I thought he did okay. Anyway, the point is, only in Russian football would the head of refereeing resign under such pathetic pressure and not actually take any responsibility and defend his uh, his referee. And that is my ramp for Russian football. I don't know whether you'd agree with that.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a good one, that definitely.
0: Okay, <laughs> perfect. So it pretty much brings us to the end of this podcast. I'd like to thank once again Andrew Flint.
2: No problem. Pleasure as always, Thomas.
0: Good stuff. And we'll hopefully see some more away fans at men sometime soon.
2: Well, um, I wouldn't count on it, but <laughs> I hope so too. <laughs>
0: and, Toka, th- thanks again. Glad you didn't miss your flight because it means you've been able to uh, come on here.
1: Oh, yeah. Me too. It's always a pleasure.
0: Perfect. And so, for the listeners, like I've said previously, do send in your questions for us. Uh, Facebook, Russian Football News, at RussFootballNews. Uh, on Twitter, sorry, at News. And then, of course, keep looking at the websites. We've got some great stuff on there at the moment, uh, particularly about the attendances in Moscow, which is actually quite fascinating at the moment. So, again, thanks for listening, and we will see
2: you on the next <laughs>